Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Hello, and welcome back for another episode of the podcast, Let Them Lead, about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you know, I'm not making that up. My guest today, by the way, this is going to be a lot of fun, and the challenge today is packing this into our time, Brad Black. Um, you may or may not have heard of him. Many have, of course. If you haven't, you're going to ask yourself why not, because his list of clients and co and colleagues and so on is so impressive and so long as to get your attention. The Walt Disney Company, Whirlpool, Caterpillar, Pitney Bowes, Stryker Corporation, the Cheesecake Factory, the Gallup Organization, Mayo Health Systems, that's Mayo Clinic and more, of course, Henry Ford Health Systems, Pella, I believe that's Pella Windows, correct? Yep. Amongst other things. And the UCLA Medical Center, the quantity, the quality, and the range of these folks is incredible. He's been written up in several books, including uh, some of Jim Collins' classics business leadership books. But before we dive in, Brad, I know a lot about your career and not that much about your background. I know you're a Nebraska native. Please tell us about where you grew up, your parents, what they did, and what they taught you. Uh, great question. I grew up in a suburb of Omaha, Nebraska. So Cornhusker is kind of in our bones. And so that's our Saturday church. Um, and so, you know, the influence of a culture like Nebraska, a culture like athletics, especially football, and the influence of people like Tom Osborne are, are significant. Uh, grew up in a, a family where my father was blue collar, uh, worked for the railroad for 46 years, um, Depression era. Parents, you know, it's, uh, you know, a father that was told by his parents work for the government or the railroad to have security for your family. Um, and so he was kind of hardwired that way. And when I was in grade school, they started a business. So, you know, they essentially both had two jobs, one as a homemaker, one as running the business and the other one, you know, sharing the business. And while they worked, you know, uh, long hours at the railroad. So, you know, my father probably averaged four or five hours a week, uh, a, a night sleep for his whole life, sacrificed for his family. Um, you know, one of the drip, drip, drips influence was hard work and work ethic. So, you know, among myself and siblings, no one will ever say we don't work as hard as the hardest worker. Um, and that's just kind of what you get in that, you know, blue collar as well as I could say white collar because they have their own business. And so at an early age being uh, focused on, you know, their organization and their customers and you know, all the things you have to do to be successful running a business. So it's almost like it's not exactly the grocery store, uh, corner grocery store, but it was the same in the sense they had customers that we had to help focus on. So there was kind of a a rich growing up, um, a very interesting um, set of relatives when they were farmers, ranchers, or college presidents. And so I had influence of all of those people. Uh, that were either, again, college presidents, business executives, farmers and ranchers. So you saw the whole span of the world and you could relate to, you know, choices people made and how they, you know, had to, you know, be the uh, gamblers with weather and, 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 and land like the farmers and ranchers. You know, they had their own business, so to speak, uh, to a college president. Um, and two of those uncles were very significant in my influence. One was a business executive for a billion dollar middle um, uh, private company, uh, California and the other one, this college president. And so early on, I guess I was one of those kids that I'm the middle child. 
And maybe it was just because somebody forgets after one or two kids who that third one is. Um, but I like to hang around adults and ask a lot of questions. And in particularly, I could pick on a few of those uh, relatives, these uncles, and I just really enjoyed learning from them because there was always a rich classroom with people that, you know, one of them was a PT boat commander uh, next to John Kennedy in wow. World War II. PT-109. Yep, he had PT-107. And uh, so he was involved in, you know, that rescue and involved in a lot of things. And then, you know, retires as a two-time college president and just really self-made in the sense that, you know, he, he grew up poor. Uh, with my mother as the youngest, he was one of the oldest of seven kids in the Sandhills of Nebraska. And just education was really important to him. And he was passionate about it. And I love, you know, learning from him. So anyway, that's kind of the, the short story. Um, 28 years um, in Omaha before I was recruited to go to Stryker in Michigan. Um, but just to fill in the gap, um, again, influenced by these two uncles, I said to them when I was probably 17, um, if, my, if I'm going to college, I want to be a business leader. What do you think I should major in? And independently, they both said accounting. And I said, why? And they said, it's the language of business. I said, if you're going to go to school, why don't you get schooled in the language of business? You'll have an advantage over anybody. Um, and so without taking bookkeeping in, in high school, I did it. I said, okay, I'm declaring a major in accounting. 101, it's like, this is boring. 102, it's still boring. <laughs> All the way through, you know, the degree, I persevered. I was laser focused. I'm going to get out of school. I'm going to have this degree. But I don't, I know I don't want to be one because this is boring work. Um, and I have no passion for this work. Good to know, but I don't want to be one. So I went to the University of Nebraska at Omaha. That was the best accounting school among Creighton, University of Nebraska, Lincoln, and, and, in Omaha, because everybody would grade it on, you know, when people sit at the CPA for CPA exams, what's the highest percentage you pass? Well, it was always the students from UNO. So that's why I went to UNO, as we call it, the hockey school in Nebraska. There's the football <laughs> school, volleyball school, that's Lincoln, and there's the hockey school, which is Omaha. So while I'm, while I'm going to school, I, I might have mentioned this to you before, but I got my graduate degree in, in, uh, in a sense, managing people. So working my way through uh, school as a full-time student, I uh, got a job to pay the bills, and including tuition, um, at UPS. And I became a Twilight supervisor after about three months because I said, I think I can do the job that the person I'm reporting to can do. We're just loading boxes in a trailer, um, and I think I can do this. Well, maybe I should have waited a little longer. Uh, I had explained to me that no one had ever done that job unless they'd been there two or three years, and I'd been there three months. But I kept <laughs> insisting, I know I can do it. I know I can do it. I can. So my boss, my boss's boss, my boss's boss, after all, they're like, hey, let him do it, you know, sink or swim. And so that was three years um, in an Omaha hub uh, in outbound areas. And whether it was seven, eight or 15 guys, and it was all guys, you know, during those times, it's hard physical work. And I basically, you know, I, I supervised who I was given. And... um and I always had the number one areas. So I didn't, I never inherited a number one area. I usually inherited a bottom third or worst uh, uh, area. Um, but I always took it to number one. And just through that, you know, real life every day when you're being measured against a scorecard among your peers every night, you know what's working and what's not working. And they would ask me, how, how do you get, you know, number one again? You know, because people always wonder when you're doing it again and again, you must be cheating or stealing or something. <laughs> and it's like, well, I work hard, I work smart, and I care. And everybody wanted to complicate that. Everybody wanted to complicate <laughs> that. It's like I can repeat that and explain it, but that is the essence. And, and you know, like the first and, two. And by the way, for our listeners, it is, as I often say in my speeches, this is simple, but it's not easy. So pay yep. attention. Yeah. Work hard, work smart, I care. Yep. Boy, if you give me how to play like that for starters, I'll teach you the rest. Yep, yep. So that was three years of drip, 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 and the reinforcement of why do I always have number one areas? And why do you want to, you know, get future supervisors out of my areas? And, of course, I was, you know, offered a full-time job because in the hubs, they're run by part-time supervisors. So, you know, we'd be working six hours, but we're also going to college. And during Christmas time, we're working eight hours. Uh, while we're in finals. So it's very demanding. 
but I had an opportunity to be promoted full time. And, you know, that was a $10,000, $15,000 pay increase. That was stock options. And I said, no. And people thought I was crazy. But at that time, through family friends, I had an opportunity to be exposed to an organization that was a subsidiary of Pitney Bowes called Data Documents. It was, it was uh, in the late 50s, started by Warren Buffett, who everybody knows Warren Buffett, and a gentleman. And by the way, to back Mount- that one up, as you know, but a lot of listeners don't, Warren Buffett, of course, is a Nebraska graduate like yourself. Yeah, proud one. You and you and L in his case, of course, Nebraska Lincoln. Yeah, is still, I believe, a season ticket holder for the Cornhuskers, and says in the cheap sheet, cheap seats, not the sweets. Yeah, so, but he is Berkshire Hathaway, of course, is based there. Um, so I bet you've encountered Mr. Buffett once or twice in your career, is my strong hunch. But you tell me. Well, indirectly, many, many times, like you know, one degree of separation, many, many times, not directly. Uh, but anyway, so I. A subsidiary started by John Cleary and Warren Buffett recruited me. At that time, they had already been purchased by a Pitney Bowes. There was probably five, six, seven years before I joined. Tell us a little bit about Pitney Bowes. What do they make? What do they do? uh, Pitney Bowes in the office automation world. So back in the day, people would think about, you know, mailing meters. I don't think about that so much, but they were the leaders and they were studied by Jim Collins and Good to Great. They were one of the 11 organizations out of 1,435. That stood out. Um, they had they never went out and recruited a CEO in a hundred years. Uh, they grew their own. Um, Mike Cretelli was a guy that you know during after my tenure became CEO, and I worked with him when he was a, a lawyer in the, the legal department before he became general counsel, before he became a division president, before he became CEO. So one of the great influences of that organization was let's develop our people. And while I'm, you know, recruited to subsidiary and then I was recruited into HR by the VP of HR to be the number two guy, um, we're interviewed every year by somebody from Stanford, Connecticut, who'd come in and say, we want to talk to you about what you've learned, where you're going, what your interests are, because we want to grow our leaders. And it's like, okay, I guess that's just what good organizations do. I didn't realize how rare it was, Uh, but I got 20 years experience packed into five and a half. So when I'm 28... You know, I, I was number two, but my my boss who who recruited me into the role, um, he left to go to the West Coast, kind of a lifestyle choice for he and his family. And he said, you can do the job, but you're only 28. And I know that coming from Stanford, Connecticut, they're going to come out and look across their entire organization and they're not going to hand the, the crown jewels of HR in this, you know, uh, highly visible subsidiary to a 21, 28 year old. But I've already recommended you're my you're their interim after I leave, and I here's the name of my recruiter that's helped me on the West Coast. I want you to start interviewing because you can do my job, um, and you're only 28. The world will say you can't, but I know you can. So that's kind of opened the door to going to Michigan, Calumet, Michigan, and Calumet what? Calumet where? Is there really one? Um, and go to a at that time a very challenged organization, uh, Striker Corporation. Hundred million back, revenue. Everybody, let's back that one up for a second too. Striker Corporation, very interesting. Yes, the Glenn Miller song. I've got a gal in Kalamazoo. I once had a gal in Kalamazoo. It's a real town. It's about two hours, almost equidistant between Detroit and Chicago, right there in I ninety four, the old Potawatomi Trail, in Native American times. Um, medical devices, beds, uh, artificial hips, knees, other items. Of course, they have often been the industry leader in. A very impressive group. Um, but anyway, that's the background on those guys. And before we move on from this one, by the way, I want to hit home a couple of points. One, the Pitney Bowes um, hiring, that was probably your big break. That got you off the reservation, basically. Um, got you to move and all that. And of course, then you moved to Kalamazoo. Um, but the idea of recruiting internally when you can. Another company in that book, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, was Walgreens Drugstore. My second book, incredibly, is on the history of Walgreens Drugstore. And they do an amazing job. Dan Jort, the CEO of the time, who got them to 10, 11,000 stores or so, he said, we've got 140,000 employees. We can't find one guy in that pile to, take, to do my job. What are we doing? And the great companies, they, do, they go outside occasionally, need some fresh blood, some fresh ideas, certainly. Um, but they don't do it constantly, that's for sure. I've noticed that's a strong pattern. You've noticed that as well. And I think there's a great advantage when you can to hire internally. And that's obviously what happened here. But anyway, back to Stryker. You're in Kalamazoo. Um, must seem a little different than uh, Nebraska, no doubt. But tell us about that. 
Yeah. So immediately I can't talk about Nebraska football anymore because, you know, you've got the Spartans, you got the Wolverines, and you got the uh, Domers. Um, it's like those Domers are the only being Notre Dame fans, by the way, of course. And they're all within about an hour and a half of you. So, yeah. Right. And so you see these signs in people's yards, you know, blue and maize and blue or green and, you know, all the different colors. Like, man, this is kind of a divided world here. I come from <laughs> a world where there's just red. Now, maybe if talking basketball, it's Creighton and it's blue, but it's just red. So, anyway, but it was also. Uh, very different in the sense that where I came from, while well, I was responsible for 18 divisions at Pitney Bowes in my employer relations role. So coast to coast, I was from Minneapolis, to West Coast, East Coast, Dallas, all over. I did a lot of travel among our 18 divisions over uh, that five and a half years. So I was, you know, in a sense, worldly that way. It wasn't like I only knew Nebraska. I, I knew the whole country. Well, and, and by the way, a point from earlier that I wanted to hit home. Your background, in some ways, was the perfect background for what you're doing now. Uh, although, yes, you're obviously in Omaha, and people might say not that you know it's a sizable town, but still in the middle of the country and all that. But the whole nation came through your town, thanks to the train station and your dad's job and so on. Yeah, you're meeting everybody, and you're constantly asking questions. What yep. a what a what a laboratory you had to work in. Yeah, you clearly milked it. There's no question about that. You got the most out of it. So, yeah, that's pretty cool background. But anyway, yep. back to Striker Sorry in Kalamazoo. Well, and then, of course, what I inherited there was some of this was only shared in the first hour of my first day by the chairman and the president, two different people. And it's kind of like, uh, I think you forgot to tell me this during the interview before I moved my family 711 miles. <laughs> so we had 40 percent turnover in the sales force. So if you were if you were a you know, business, you're running on marbles. If you're a school system losing 40 percent of your teachers, you're not being written about um, in a good book. Um, so there's one there's one important fact. We had 1% of our hourly workforce came to work on time. We had what many people one, 1%, back that one up, 1% of, of our hourly, hourly workforce, workforce showed up on time. On time every day they're supposed to. So we'd call it perfect attendance. Only so one. It sounds like they did it by accident based on the percentages. <laughs> well, it was, it, was, it was a reflection of the culture. And there was an us and them culture. There was a union that had been there for 30 years. And it was kind of like us and them. You know, on that side of the door is them. And on this side of the door is us. And I said, you know, us and them never wins. The only people that win is us. If you have us and them under the under the roof, you lose. And so people thought, yeah, whatever, you're a 28-year-old, you're from Nebraska. You don't understand this world. <laughs> and at the same time, that union was at Whirlpool, and Whirlpool decided we're going to move our factories to Mississippi, Tennessee, and Mexico. We're going to leave Benton Harbor. And Checker Motors was, you know, burning their cabs, and they're having all kinds of issues. And I said, all right, I know how to deal with this. You know, again, you may not think I do, but I'm going to be here a short amount of time and I'm going to ask everybody in the organization relevant questions about our culture, about their workplace, about the conditions we've created. Because there's nothing more important than creating the conditions where people want to give their all and do it there. And so for an organization 41 years old, they had never measured their culture. And John Brown, the chairman, Longtime chairman said, you know, the culture's mine. And I understood and respected that. But I also knew that we had 40% turnover and 1% of the hourly workforce came to work on time. So I didn't want to blame him for that or, you know, rub anybody's nose in it. But it's like, we got an issue because people don't choose to not come to work because they're excited about what they're doing and excited about who they're doing it with and for. So there were other indicators of not only the, oh, and another important detail, the month before I joined, they laid 10% of the company off. So 10% of the employees lost their job a month before I joined. And I remember somebody sending me a note in the mail at Pitney Bowes with a cutout of the Wall Street Journal. Stryker lays off 10%. And this friend of mine, his name was Bill Reinhardt. He said, oops, like I made a big mistake. So, you know, he didn't know what I would, you know, the background of why I did what I did. But most people looked at it and said, if the company you just agreed to join as a top HR guy just laid off 10%, Ooh, um, and in a company one thirtieth the size of where I was coming from. So a lot of times people will relate big to best, and it's not true. But many people logically say, if you're leaving bigger to go to smaller, that's not smart. And if you're going to smaller, who just laid off ten percent, that's not smart twice. So <laughs> anyway, this was shared with me most of it in the first hour of my first day, and it's kind of like, guys, you didn't change my mind. I'm not calling the moving van back. I'm not telling my family we're moving back. I'm not, you know, I'm not going back. I'm here. 
Um, and I, I'm, I'm great with this challenge. In fact, maybe I'm a little sick. I, I'm glad that the challenge is, is this significant because, you know, as you talk about, you know, when you're laying on the floor, you, you know, you don't have far to fall. Um, you know, when you're down that far, you can only go up. So to me, my, it was. It's, it's my dad's great quote. He said, title of chapter one of the book, Let Them Lead. When you're on the floor, you can't fall out of bed. Yep. And Brad, my dad is not a motivational speaker. I'll tell you that, but yeah. it's wisdom. <laughs> so, sometimes it's all you got. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I, I shared, you know, with the leadership team and probably the first six weeks of being there, here's your culture. It dates me a little bit. It's on an overhead. It was bar chart showing the worst to the best. And I said, we don't have one culture. We have, you know, dozens of cultures. It depends on who you work for. Um, if you work for her or him, you love it. If you work for him or her, you hate it. So it's almost that simple. Same company, same pay structure, same address, same business, same leader, same chairman, same whatever. But you have a bell-shaped curve under the roof. You have heaven and hell under the same roof. And so <laughs> I that, was... By the way, hey, Brad, that one's too good. You got heaven and hell under the same roof. Well, yep. Way to boil it down. That's yeah, awesome. <laughs> we did. And so people are like, no one's ever told us this. No one ever measured this. No one ever showed us that we really do have heaven because we're just hearing the evidence of hell. And I said, and you're not dealing with it. And I said, again, you know, I inherited something from a, a predecessor that had been there 10 years and he was very traditional in his approach. I was not traditional in my approach. And I said, we're here to set people up to win and grow people to be pros. And that's for a later discussion. But I said, that's the essence of why I'm here is to make sure people are set up to win and we're going to grow pros. And we can't do that if you work in some area that you feel is hell or somebody's calling you names if you don't answer the survey right to make them a hero. Um, we're not going to have micromanagers. We're not going to have dictators. We're going to have people that care about people. So, again, that's just kind of a theme from my UPS days that I knew the basics. If you want to give your all, you better have people that care about other people. They trust you different. They will give you more. But if you don't care, there's nothing that's a substitute for that. And so I committed that everybody would work for somebody that they could say, strongly agree, I work for somebody who cares about me. And so that was obviously a journey over many years, but, um, you know, not a, not a, you know, real relevant to the issue. But one of the indicators is after being there 30 years, people decided I don't want to take money out of my pocket, uh, to pay union dues when I work for a company like this with people like this that care. And so, you know, it was unheard of. You, you know this, John, in terms of Michigan, it's unheard of for unions to be decertified. It has to come from the employees. But they felt so great about the organization they're with, the people they work for, that they're like, why do I take money out of my pocket when these people care? Um, when I have a great future, when I have great security, when I have great opportunity. And so anyway, that was people just thought that's how people from Nebraska think. And it's like, no, anywhere where you create conditions where the people responsible for them show they care. They don't need somebody to, you know, fight their fight because the person who they report to is fighting their fight, caring about their future, appreciating them, supporting them, coaching them, developing them. So you have an army of the manager coaches or in school, it'd be principals or administrators that are fully committed to seeing the development of these people to reach their potential. Whatever their role is, doesn't matter the bus driver, the para, the special ed teacher, the ed specialist, the gen ed teacher, you have people committed to seeing people's potential be realized. We see that in every profession. When you have those people that care about others and they woke, wake up every day caring more about them and that they, as we build our organization around the focus of talent, culture, and teams, they know those are more than words. They can define them. They can measure them and they can build them. And so I use that laboratory from real life experience as a practitioner um, to prove this is how you do it. And so it was a few short years later, George Calagridis, who is, uh, eventually became president of Walt Disney World, came to visit me for a couple of days at Stryker. He wanted to learn what we did in transforming using advanced uh, human capital practices. You know, Gallup inducted me in their Hall of Fame in the early mid uh, 90s. They they would send people and they would come and study what we did. Far cry from laying off 10% of the employees, 40% turnover in Salesforce. And now we had a record number of salespeople selling a million or two or three million a year. 
You know, and, and turnovers down and you're not laying off anybody, correct? Right. And performance is sky high. So it's basically How, like what is this, the percentage of people who showed up on time. Oh, we we had to rent ballrooms at the hotel downtown or huge facilities at Western Michigan to host the 65 to 70 percent of the employees that never missed a day and were not late a second. So from one percent to nearly 80 percent, nobody that, can ever find that anywhere on the planet that anybody would have an hourly workforce that engaged to say, I don't want to even be late a second. Yeah. That's the amazing thing is one blip, one second, and you're off that list. Right. These guys did it day in, day out. Not like most of the time are, you know, satisfactorily. Right. right. Day in, day out, that shows commitment. And yeah. of course, we both know it snows in Michigan. Yep. We got traffic. Yep. Um, there are accidents, Some... there's construction, and there are no excuses here. They still showed up. That stat alone speaks volumes about what you created. And some people live 40 minutes from work. Right. And they were a perfect attendance again. Perfect attendance again. Perfect attendance again. And, you know, again, I'm I'm a champion of the blue collar, maybe. Uh, maybe, you know, I was raised and, you know, sometimes it's kind of the them and us is the white collar versus blue collar, the factory versus whatever, the union versus the management. And I thought, you know, I work for it. You know, I, I live in a family where my dad is the them um, instead of the us. And I see how working for somebody who doesn't care uh, affects him. And when he talks about my mom, when he comes home from work and kind of affects his mood, affects the family. Man, if he was excited about work, if he came home talking about this great boss who cared about him, we'd have different family conversations. And so I never forgot that. And so later when I said, we're going to create those kind of family discussions. But the difference is, man, you can't believe what Lonnie Carpenter or Kurt Hartman or Bill Inquist or... Anton Rohr, Pedro Martinez, whoever it might be. You still know the names of these guys 25 years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't lost contact with any of them. And That's awesome. You know, some of them are presidents of medical device companies in, in the industry. Uh, you know, one of them is just retiring as president Stryker, who started off as a sales rep in Grand Rapids. Seven jobs later, he's the president Stryker, Tim Scannell. He was one of them that helped us build the NFL pipeline. Uh, or or one of the beneficiaries of us building the NFL pipeline. Let's, for let's explain that, by the way. The NFL pipeline, former NFL players working for Striker Corporation, often in sales. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so LinkedIn, uh, I had dinner with uh, Kevin Love, the president, a couple of years ago, and he said, Brad, you know, I got I need some history here. You know, you preceded me with these practices and, you know, what you guys were doing. Can you tell me why I get the call from LinkedIn that we're the number one company that retired NFL football players work for, and we're the number one company current NFL players apply to work for. And I said, well, yeah, that goes back to 1989 with Ron Plans, Tony Forjanic, and Tim Scannell. Uh, there were three domers, Notre Dame players, but one went to the Colts, one went to the, the uh, Buffalo Bills, one went to the Cowboys. Cut, injured, whatever. Well, what are they going to do after NFL? One went to Secret Service, one went to Chicago Board of Trade, one was just kind of bouncing around in life. And I said, we don't look for skills and experience. We look for talent. And so these people have talent when we're like our best, which is, you know, the way I describe it, in our sales force. So let's give them a, what we would call the gladiator territories, which are the ones that warriors are the only ones who are going to turn it around. <laughs> they're, they're so burned down, so bad, so competitive. You know, it's asking a college player to play against an NFL team. Um, and so we put them in gladiator. By the way, gladiator territories. Don't just call them the worst or this and that. Gladiator territories means we need a gladiator. You turn a negative into a positive just by yep. renaming it. Yep, yep. And if you're, wimp if you're wimpy, don't show up. It ain't going to work. Right, right. So some of our best would ask, could I go to a gladiator territory? Yes. And they were like, <laughs> that's, having that's awesome. They were having incredible success, incredible life, incredible, easy life, great life, making tons of money. And they're like, I want to go from San Francisco to L.A. to that Gladiator territory. Heck, yes. Uh, we'll let you go. We'll support you. You're guaranteed for two years. We'll figure out the comp. But you want a challenge, and we will, we will give you a challenge. And we know you can do it. Um, and we did. We knew they could do it. So we had about 10 Gladiator territories and, and a couple of more in Chicago. And that's where, you know, two of these three started. But later, you know, they're president of their own company, president of Stryker. 
but if you build that high probability pipeline, which is my my language from an advanced human capital way, instead of we can't hire enough, we're not paying enough, we paid straight commission. So it's thirty six thousand dollars a year, three thousand dollars a month draw. You aren't going to get rich on that. You're either going to starve, or you're going to do so well. You are going to make fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty, hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand because you're paid on straight commission. You know, it's basically eat what you kill. And so we had our sales force build around this concept of it's it's like the Navy SEALs or what you you highlight in your book. You, everybody can't work here. Only the best can, and the best will be rewarded because they earn their rewards. And when you're when you're selling a million or two or three, you're not only getting the Rolex watch, which is our version of the Heisman Trophy that you could wear in your wrist, you know, every every day, but you're going to have a great life. And then sometimes you'd say, "Hey, what would you like to do long term?" Someone would say, "I've I've made it. This is my life. I'm Michael Jordan in basketball. This is what I want to do." Others would say, "I want to coach. I want to build a team. I want to be a regional manager. I want to run a sales force. I want to be a division president." And so out of our sales force was the richest pipeline for leadership because they're out there a mano a mano in the field against the competition with our customers, learning the business, winning. And all we did is give them a bigger stage with their region, a bigger stage with the sales force, a bigger stage with their division. And some of the all time, you know, legends at Stryker came from carrying a bag to being a leader because they knew the product, they knew the strategies, they knew the competition. They had won all the hard fights in the trenches. Nothing was given to them. And there's a it's a phenomenal leadership laboratory, uh, whether it's athletics or whether it's sales or whether it's coaching. And when we promoted somebody into leadership, it's like, this is obvious. <laughs> They've already proven themselves. All we're asking them to do is now take finance and, and, and operations and R&D and the rest be responsible for all the functions. But, you know, it was an example. That's just one example of many. We built high probability pipelines to places like the NFL where only the top 1% gets there. And you're not taking everybody just because they play in the NFL. You're just taking the cream out of the high probability pools. And now, you know, I, I guarantee every competitive striker just thinks they're lucky or cheating or stealing or whatever. <laughs> uh, because how can all these NFL players want to work at Stryker. And that pipeline is well, 30 years old. Uh, I've, I've seen it, by the way. I've spoken for Stryker. I've studied them and talked to their crews before, and you've done a phenomenal job there. Uh, they get a lot of athletes, obviously the NFL pipeline, but also college athletes, even sometimes high school athletes. Yep. A lot of military guys. Yep. Those guys know how to show up on time. They know how to work hard. They've got thick skin. They can take criticism. Yep. And they're not inclined to give up. They're right. used to fighting through things. So, so the first that, two, the first two, that, Jay, that formula is very good. Yeah. So that was the other high probability pipeline that was transformational. Was what I call the junior military officer, the GMO pipeline. So Lana Carpenter was the first. Kurt Hartman was the second. This is 1988, and I said, if we're gonna if we're gonna be in this this battle, and I should probably back up. The high standard of John Brown was we're gonna grow profits 20 percent every quarter, every year, forever. Okay, 20% every quarter. Every quarter, every year, year over year. I mean, you know, this quarter against the year goes quarter, right, right, this right. quarter against year, forever. Mm -hmm. So it's the only company in the planet that did it 27 straight years, never missing a beat. Wow. So all of a sudden you wonder, why do people want to buy striker stock and get rich? Because you're talking about a consistent performer. That's like Alabama, you know, playing for the national championship for 27 years. Um, no competitor did that. No business in America did that, but we did that. So that's one of the reasons why I went there was because, again, people thought I was sick, but I was attracted to, and you know this because it's highlighted in your book, you go to a place where the bar separates the ones who just want to sleep in the trophy room or just hang around and buy the uniform. It's like, no, no, no. This is like Navy SEALs. This is like they want to try out and test themselves against the best. And I already knew that from my human capital point of view, I didn't speak normal language. My peers didn't understand what I was doing. But I knew the intersection of a high standard leader like John Brown with other great leaders that I worked with and worked for um, and the freedom um, to build these high probability pipelines for a growth company would be transformational. So here, Lonnie Carpenter was employee for first JMO. He retired three years ago as president. 
He was group president over 35,000 people around the world. Um, and he started off as a warehouse supervisor a month after he was a helicopter pilot. West Point grad. Kurt Hartman, um, he was a ROTC grad, University of Michigan, aerospace engineer. I got him from Fort Hood, also a helicopter pilot. So two different sources, both Army, um, you know, both phenomenal leaders. Uh, Kurt is not retired. Kurt is the uh, CEO of ConMed, um, a multi-billion dollar medical device company in upstate New York. Um, but he's he started off as a manufacturing engineer and seven jobs later was CFO. Eight jobs later was interim CEO before they picked another leader internally. But that JMO pipeline, as you highlight, you're talking about people that have been how many times have they been vetted, uh, whether they got into the academy or Rossi program or been promoted or been thrown into battle or thrown into you know, tough conditions? They learn how to swim in deep water. Um, and they did it again and again and again and again. It's like when I, you know, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people were criticizing me, thinking I'm crazy. Why are you getting a helicopter pilot to run our warehouse? He doesn't know logistics. He doesn't know our company. He doesn't know medical devices. I said, we can teach him all that. You never knew it at one time in your life. I never knew it at one time <laughs> in my life. But I'm getting, a, I'm getting a leader. And in one week, everybody will know he's a leader. And in two weeks, everybody will fall in love for, with him that reports to him. So Lonnie was the first transformational leader out of the military pipeline, JMO pipeline, that, that really allowed that pipeline to be built for many, many years still today, uh, where people come in with these, these backgrounds and experiences that have nothing to do with medical devices, but they show that it's talent that is the most important thing. And that's what I... When I went to Stryker in 1986, I said, I'm obsessed and laser focused on two things. I will teach about talent and culture to the point where they are clearly literate. They can define it, they can measure it, and they can build it. And so obviously, you know. Define it, measure it, and build it. That's big. Yep. And the world can't. You know, if you haven't asked people to to define it, they're like, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the it. Okay, that means you can't explain it. If you call talent it then you can't explain it, um, you know, but we did it. And then obviously that was part of the reason why, you know, my longtime mentor, the grandfather of positive psychology, Don Clifton, at that time the chairman of Gallup, he inducted me in the Hall of Fame because he said, you taught me about integration of talent, not only selecting it, but developing it. And I didn't know about culture until you taught me how you have to have the soil for the seed. Because town alone is a seed, but you can't put on the parking lot and expect that to be a redwood tree. Um, you got to plant it in the right soil. You got to have the places where it's heaven to be, not hell to be, because that's not attractive for people to give their life to go work in hell. Um, so anyway, that was a beautiful laboratory because it was broken. Odds were against us. Everybody thought I was crazy or stupid to go there. But on in the back end, George Calagridis, Don Clifton, you know, Hall of Fame in books. It's like, hey, this is working, isn't it? And then, and then I, I went into the phase of my consulting life after being a practitioner the first 15 years of my career. Pretty amazing. Uh, great stories. Talent and culture, define it, measure it, and teach it, if I got that right. Be, and um, build it and model it, which is basically the same thing. I mean, in the sense build that, it. there you go. Go prove it. Where's your team you built? Where's the division you built? Where's the sales force you built? Show other people how to do it. Pay, pay, pay to the next generation because that's also when, you know, Gal, you know, if, truth be told, they were t- trying to recruit me from Stryker for 10 years. And I said, I'm not, I am not leaving until I know this is in the bedrock, until this cannot, this would have to have a nuclear bomb to blow it up. It's going to be so deep in the bedrock of this is just what we do. Then I can go to another chapter of my life. I don't need, Striker to be the only chapter of my life or the second chapter of my life being, you know, 200 page chapter two. Um, I'm ready to take the challenges of I'll sit on the other side of the desk and I'll teach people to do how I did what I did. And so that's. I did, of course, for Gallup and then the spinoff, Talent Plus. Right. Tell us a bit about those. Then I'd be remiss if I did not get to HumanX before we're done. Yep. So. So Gallup, the opportunity there was, you know, I had created the largest client they ever had in their history. Um, you know, by, you know, when I was working with Don. Who was that, by the way? 
Well, Stryker. Stryker was oh, the largest client that Gallup's ever had in their history. And so mm-hmm. I built that from scratch. It was They were not working with Gallup before. And I worked with Don to be able to build tools. So it was basically like they were the wood shop or the machine shop to build the tools I needed. And Don did that. And he always made sure that, hey, if we can't build it, then you can build it here. You can work with our researchers and explain what you need and they'll build it, even though they don't know why they're building it. And so we had a really strong collaborative relationship. Um, And so I basically then went there and taught them how to be a better organization or how to go to healthcare, go to, you know, any other industry. And I chose healthcare. My wife's a nurse. And I think she got tired of all the accolades at Stryker. Like, man, if you could do at Stryker, if you could do at hospitals, uh, what you did at Stryker, uh, that could change people's lives and give their all every day, um, you know, in healthcare. And I said, all right, I'll take that challenge. So our largest uh, client, we um, Gallup for the most part was a survey business. It was just doing surveys. I mean, that's that's the majority of the organization. Well, we did patient satisfaction survey for the largest for-profit healthcare system in the country, HCA, down in Nashville. That a 200 hospital system. And I said, so if you measure it, but you can't change it, you have limited value. It's kind of a commodity. Anybody else could do a survey. But if you can change the outcomes of engagement or patient sat or physician sat or loyalty, then you've added value. I know I can do that. I can show you how to do that. So I put together a couple of overheads. I said, hey, when you go to Nashville next time for the person managing the relationship, I said, put these overheads up and say that, that you know, I can come and, uh, you know, go from my medical device healthcare into healthcare, but in hospitals, and I'll build the new models that I build at Stryker, but I'll do it in hospitals. So there were three hospitals down in Florida, JFK Medical Center in Palm Beach, uh, Northwest Medical Center in Fort Lauderdale, and St. Lucie Medical Center in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Uh, up the, you know, Broward and Palm, uh, and, and, and Palm, uh, West, uh, Palm Beach County and Treasure Coast. And I said, I'll build a model and we'll build it where other people can come and learn, just like I did at Stryker, where Disney would come study us, but now I'll do it in healthcare. So then over the years, we'd have Stryker come visit, we'd have the Anaventus system come, we'd have 200 hospitals come and study. Every 90 days, we taught them how we created the most engaged workforce in healthcare. And because we had access to so much of our Q12 information, we could look at industry data and say that out of the seven biggest industries or professions, um, uh, manufacturing and healthcare are number six and number seven of seven industries where you'll find the least engaged people, healthcare and manufacturing. So if your dad works at a factory or your mom works at a hospital, those are the two professions you find the least engaged people. Um, and it's like, isn't that criminal? I said, Stryker, the factory, we had, we set the records. So in the worst, we were the best. And in healthcare, how did the stuff we're doing at St. Lucie Medical Center beat all the records I created as Stryker? So anyway, the two worst industries for engagement created the world's best that Gallup had ever seen models for engagement. And so again, that was just a bigger stage for it works somewhere other than Stryker because people treated Stryker and me like the model. Like, you know, Nick Saban. And it's like, I'm trying to teach you how to do it at another place. It's not just, it's not just Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I'm not just lucky. I'm going to give you the playbook. I'm going to give you the recipe. I'm going to give you the blueprint. And after a while, people just go, well, it didn't work for me. It didn't work for me. Well, that's probably your part of the problem. (laughs) Or you don't know how to teach, or you think this is just easy. But you have to, back to the care piece, you have to care about your client partner. And you have to add value. You have to teach them. You have to be there for them. And so, you know, I was well-known for doing that when I was at Gallup and then well-known to a spinoff of Gallup that dated back to 1989. And they were well-known for their work with Ritz-Carlton. That's Talent Plus. That's Talent Plus. So they recruited me as a board on the board and as a practice leader. And in a short you know, number of years, we doubled the size of the company. Um, and I had the Mormon church. I had the cheesecake factory. I used to a medical center. I had Pella I had all these places I could go across, you know, the country. And I grew up in manufacturing. I grew up in healthcare. I knew these places, you know, I didn't grow up in the Mormon church. I'm not Mormon, but, uh, when I was asked to go teach for graduate school at BYU, they're fascinated with my striker story. 
and they want to know where it could apply uh, in the Mormon church. And I said, well, anywhere. I said, find me a progressive leader. And they introduced me to a guy that uh, ran their, basically their goodwill. They call it Deseret Industries. Um, and they basically, it's like, you know. Which, we, by the way, it's a very big thing in the Mormon church because it's a 10% tithing. And if you're on, down in your luck as a Mormon, there's a ton of help. Yep, yep. Warehouses full of excellent clothes. Yep. Um, it's goodwill times something. It's amazing what they've done out there. Yep. So I had a chance to work with Curtis Rafton, a really neat, neat guy. And the one thing I knew from working on the inside of the organization was they're phenomenal business people. They're phenomenal financial uh, literacy is like, you know, world class. And so they love measurement. Same thing I love. It's like, I'll measure all this stuff that you've never measured. You know, you're, you're, this is like, this is my dessert. Um, I'll show you how to measure what matters. And so again, bell shaped curve, like back of my record is heaven to hell. I, I won't call it hell in that, in that, uh, context, but I'll say you have, Careful. you have 40 some stores. Um, and let me tell you about the talent of who's leading each store. Took them through interviews. And over here is this one. And I, and I said, I'll disclose the names of the best all the way down to the worst. But after five names, he said, stop. You have already named the people that created 80% of our profits in our entire organization in the first five. How did you know that? I said, Curtis, I don't, I didn't know that. I just told you who are your five most talented leaders. And it didn't matter what their background was. It was a matter of the culture they built, how they led. I just found your version of, you know, my later reference to PJ Fleck. You know, you know, that's we'll, PJ Fleck is the Minnesota football coach previously at the Western Michigan University Broncos, where you were, of course, in Kalamazoo, went 12 and 0 a few years ago, which got him a job, of course, at uh, Minnesota, where he's also done quite well. Right. But he went through our interview to get his job uh, because he was in the he, I did not know that. Yeah, he was in the no pile uh, because at the time that they were making a change. Uh, there were people that were from, you know, the, um, I won't go into all the, all the sensitive details of who's in the search, but everyone was either a head coach or a coordinator for a national championship division one school. And then there's this wide receiver coach at Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So the call, the president goes, no way. I'm not interviewing him. And so they, the AD, you know, talked to the president. He knew me from my striker days and, you know, all the credibility I'd built in Kalamazoo. And he said, if Humanex does the interviews, if Brad does the interviews, will you, will you accept this? And he said, yes, fine, fine. So I did all the interviews. And when I came back to Kathy and Dr. Dunn, I said, it's a no brainer guys. At Western Michigan. At Western right. Michigan. I said, it's a no brainer. I said, there's one obvious, very obvious choice. It's so easy. Uh, but it's just going to be hard to explain. So I just have to tell you on the on the front end, it's going to be hard for you to explain because it's the person with the worst resume, but he's got the most talent. <laughs> he has transformational level talent. It will not be the same when he comes here as what he inherited. You'll see something you've never seen before. So I knew that from a two and a half hour interview at 4.30 in the morning on a Saturday morning when he was you know, down in Tampa Bay. Um, and that was written up in a John Gordon book, that whole story that I just told you, uh, row the boat. Um, but my reference back to PJ flex, there's PJ flex all over the world that won't get an interview, won't get an opportunity, won't get a job because yeah, exactly. So if you open that up, you see my name and the reference in there. So it's, if the whole world could be introduced to the PJ flex and the Sue Inquist, who was 11 time national championship coach who Carol Hutchins thinks walks on water. Well, Carol's a walk-on-water coach at University of Michigan, and she reveres the 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 ground that Sue Inquist walks on because she's won 11 national championships and just recently was responsible for the gold medal of Olympians in the women's volleyball uh, from Tokyo, using our tools to assess all the players and our tools to measure the culture when the women's volleyball team won the gold medal. So it's back to you find those people and equip those people and support those people, you'll have a transformational uh, organization. And if you do that in a community, you have a transformational community. Because why is, you know, 40 minutes to the west or 20 minutes to the east of Kalamazoo are two, commu two communities that are not thriving at the level Kalamazoo is? It's not, 
somebody in Lansing is doing something special for people in Kalamazoo. It's not somebody in Washington, D.C. that's giving them advantages. It's that they are highly talent literate, highly culture literate, and you see market and industry leaders in one community. And so that's what you get. You get a different energy, vibe, security, future, you know, when you put all them together. And that's really one of our models as a community model. And taking that idea one step farther, first of all, Carol Hutchins is the only coach in the North to win a national title in softball because they play half their games in Texas and Arizona and Florida before they play their first home game because it snows up here. Uh, my joke about her is that when Alabama wins a national title in hockey, they will have equaled her accomplishment. Yep. So, yep. And don't hold your breath on that one. Yep. <laughs> so that's she, how hard it is. I, I spoke to her team last week, actually. She's a legend. Um, she's a legend. She's a legend, and, it, and, it's, and it's culture. Yeah. It's culture. Yeah, she's competitive. Yeah, she you know looks at the stats and the wins and losses, but she really focuses on attitude more than anything else. And I've seen that constantly in my knowledge of her for 20-some years or so. Um, jumping ahead, the whole idea now is that what you have here – it's not just Stryker, of course. It's not just Pitney Bowes. Now it's not just Gallup. You've spread that around, of course, to Western Michigan football and many other, of course, components. Um, HumanX, your current company started in 2007, has proven your idea that these concepts are timeless and they're transferable, not only across regions, and but across industries uh, that have nothing to do with each other. The Mormon church and Western Michigan football. On paper, not a lot in common. And yet this stuff is universal. Explain HumanX and why this works so well. Yeah. So the largest shareholder of Stryker came to me in 2007, February 2007, invited me to dinner and said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate, been blessed to, to you know, acquire wealth um, that, you know, isn't because of me. Um, I was a high school principal when I was 28. Um, but, you know, our family has wealth and, um you know, my wife's grandfather was one that started the company in 1941, early, early 40s. And now we're sitting on millions and billions and we want to pay forward to the community. And, you know, I've been a client, a uh, partner of yours, and you've demonstrated not only Stryker, but Greenleaf Trust and Greenleaf Hospitality. Everything that you guys have done with me and for me is, has been transformational. How could we take that to the next level? And I'm willing to write a check. Uh, for whatever you need to buy or build to start the company that would basically be your dream. Because, you know, Gallup Down Plus is happy all the revenue you're bringing in and all the notoriety. Um, but, you know, they're not asking you what you need and letting you run the company. And what would you what would you do if it was your model? I said, well, the thing that I, you know, spent time with Don Clifton at Gallup teaching that I did at, at Stryker was the integrated model. You know, it's select one more like your best grow them to their potential, and do it in a world-class culture with processes that can be repeated, whether I'm in Puerto Rico, California, Ireland, or Kalamazoo. So that's the basics of what I proved during my time as Stryker and during my time at Gallup and, and beyond. And I said, but there's another component to this that's even more powerful and transformational, the community model. Because if the superintendents, you know, at, um, let's say, Schoolcraft or Novi or Rochester or Rockford or all over Michigan. Way, these are all Michigan towns. Right. And these are all client partners of ours in education. So they're ones that, you know, thank us all the time for. We would not have the teachers we have, the coaches we have, the leaders we have. If it wasn't for you. Um, so, you know, that's just I'm talking about Michigan related, but I can go to Texas and do the same and go to Minnesota and do the same and go to Ohio, and do the same. So. When you have a collection of that and you're not then labeled, well, you only do it for education. No, we do it for athletics. We do it for business. We do it for hospitals. We do it for agriculture. We work with Frito-Lay's number one rated supplier in the world that's in Schoolcraft, Michigan. Um, you know, it's, it's 20 minutes from Kalamazoo. It's off the radar because they don't put their name on the, the potato chips, but Frito-Lay can only get 52 weeks of supply from one supplier in the world, Walter Farms. So when you start to do that in a community, you start teaching it. We're just teaching the alphabet in English and math. And math is not different in China than math in Portugal. One plus one equals two. So we're trying to get it down to the basics and teach it in a community and equip a community to the point where, kind of like back to my striker days when I told Gallup, no, I'm not coming there until I've been here at least 10 years. 
or around 10 years. And I said, so when we take the drip, drip, drip of planting the seeds, watering these in Nashville and D.C., where I was yesterday, or Dallas-Fort Worth, or northern Colorado, Chicago, western Michigan, eastern Michigan, I said, when these soak in and people can see it's irrespective of industry, profession, or geography, they'll understand this is the most transformational model they've ever seen. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what has happened. The results you've gotten in education and athletics and healthcare um, have been phenomenal and have repeated your success. Like I said, it's timeless and it's transferable. One of the interesting things I've gotten from our conversation today, Brad, is that wherever you go, everyone always thinks, yeah, but where you are is the exception. <laughs> I keep hearing this. It's, you know, yeah, that's Pitney Bowes. You can't do it here, Stryker. Yeah, well, that's, you know, Stryker. You can't do it here, Gallup. Well, that's Gallup. You can't. And it keeps on happening and you keep on proving them wrong. That, and, and it boils down to the same thing. People are people. And usually when your company is not working well, and I've said this to engineering companies, healthcare companies, it's not because you don't know engineering. It's not because you don't know healthcare. So you don't know people, right? It's the people that screw you up, right? And that's what we have to fix. And and, so. and and we touch on all three of them when we talk about talent, culture, and teams. That's it. You know? Talent, culture, and teams. Because talent that's is phenomenal. Talent is transformational. Sue Inquist is transformational. She, she's not a volleyball coach, but you could ask Karch or Jordan Larson, the captain of the of the gold medal uh, Olympians, who was number one and how you won the gold medal. A softball coach. She didn't teach us X's and O's. She helped us be, you know, give our all bonded and welded together. Uh, PJ Fleck, um, you know, again, I could go across industry and name people in education that Mike Lubefell and Andy DeRoss in Chicago at Schaumburg 54 and North Shore 112 and RJ Weber at, and Steve Matthews and Gary Kinzer at Novi. All over the country, we see these transformational people, but the world didn't give them tools. The world doesn't give them a book. The world doesn't give them a good classroom. So we always want to be the teacher in the classroom with the books for people that want to learn. And that's where it starts with, as you talk about, it's the mindset of the leaders. Either you want to make excuses or you want to go to class. Either you want to learn or you want to make excuses. I sometimes describe what we do. You know, when I talk, describe what we do, I said, you know, when I do it, I know I'm just blowing the dog whistle. And I know there's some people that hear it and some people don't. I say the same thing to a room. And there's three people come up going, can you help me? And other people think, yeah, well, it's, you know, they're lucky. You know, nobody can do it. Phones, right. You know, <laughs> did you know there's a teacher shortage? Did you know there's a nurse shortage? Yeah, I heard that 25 years ago. But I know, <laughs> but I know hospitals that have no teacher or uh, uh, healthcare shortage. They have no nursing shortage. I know a place at Nova, I don't have a bus driver shortage because the bus barn is this amazing place to create the, the environment and experience for the kids at the beginning and end of the day. That's what great bus it. drivers do. Uh, the bus barn. You've gone from Stricker Corporation, of course, Gallup and all the rest. It's the bus barn in Novi, Michigan. And the bus barn works, people. Oh, they're the bus a bunch of works. rock stars. There we go. Rock star, bus drivers. I love that, of course. That's fantastic. So I'm going to start closing it up here. It's been too much fun. Brad, I got bad news. I need you back. <laughs> I need you back uh, later on for more of this because I know you got more. It's tremendous. We'll do it again and I'll again. Try to boil, there you go. I try to boil it down to a few pointers here. In your case, almost impossible, but watch me go. One is let them do it. They let you do that early on, of course, with UPS. And your whole philosophy since then is give the guy a chance. Whether the resume lines up or not, uh, the most talent can often be the worst resume. That's PJ Fleck, and he proved you right. So give him a chance. Let him do it. My chapter on that is chapter six. Let him surprise you. Water all the plants and see who grows. Yep. So you got no idea. But like I said, if the seed for the redwood is in a parking lot, it ain't going to grow. You got to water it. You got to find some dirt. So I like that one. This one is too simple. I can barely even count it, but it's so great. Work hard, work smart, care about people. Hey, yeah. as simple as can be, but show me the companies that do that. And you'll have a great company there, of course. Uh, for talent and culture, you can't define it, measure it, and build it. You really don't have talent and culture. <laughs> so work on those things. And I can't help but close, of course, with talent, culture, and teams. Everybody just talked about the last hour and from Nebraska to Michigan to Florida, all over the United States. And of course, elsewhere too, if you want to go there, talent, culture, and teams, get those things right. And the details seem to take care of themselves. Oh, you'll have a, you'll have a transformational future for the families, the stockholders, stakeholders, the community. Like, how did we get them? I mean, if you just, you know, watch the pride of people in, in Kalamazoo about Stryker and how many 
great list oh, yeah. they're getting on today. And on the other side of town is one of Jim Collins' contrast companies. It's buried into a hole called Upjohn. I remember the, the day that the picture on the front of the Council Gazette was the bulldozers bulldozing the headquarter building of Upjohn into a hole. Cycle like, there. I mean, that's a visual of a a, symbolic of a campfire story. Remember when, where Stryker is now maybe five times bigger than Upjohn ever was, and they have the market uh, value of Ford, Whirlpool, and Kellogg's put together. Um, wow, a hundred. I did not know that. A hundred billion. So, how many people is that? You know, impacting their wealth in their four hundred one k or people that are giving hundreds of millions to universities or to causes because they have wealth created by success. But that success is created by a formula that is mastered that they didn't have in 1986. And you already know this, of course, better than I do. All this led to Stricker Corporation leading the charge on the Kalamazoo Promise, which says that a local high school kid who graduates from Kalamazoo, uh, Kalamazoo High School, uh, can go to Western Michigan for free. Uh, can go to 51 schools of education in Michigan for free. I take it back. 51 yeah. schools of it, education in Michigan for free. Yeah, Michigan, University of Michigan, Alma College, uh, Michigan State, Western, Eastern, Central, Northern, K College. Yeah, Michigan Tech, where I'm a trustee. Michigan so, Tech, hey. yep. That place where you have to add 0. 0.5 to GPA to make it equal to everybody else. Uh, our story before. There we go. I love it. Uh, last question. Who was your favorite teacher and why? Uh, that was Mrs. Hill in third grade. Um, just one of these passionate, um, just passionate. I mean, she just made school fun. Um, there was another one in high school, Mr. Smith in business law, and same thing. They were passionate. They could care. They knew you. Um, again, kind of the basics of they didn't just know how to teach. They knew how to teach well. But they became friends. You trusted them. You liked them. You might even loved them. Um, and so those were the two that really, really stand out. And that's part of the reason why I love our education, uh, what we call River Division, so much because you find some of the neatest people on the planet in education and athletics are teachers on the grass, on the rink, uh, on the court or the mat. And so a lot of times people separate coaches from teachers. The P.J. Fleck, he is a teacher inside a coach. Absolutely. Uh, I've had in my class at Michigan, leading by coaching. I've got all the hot shots coming down. Uh, back edge, of course, the baseball coach who got to the College World Series Finals, the first Big Ten team to do that in 60, since 66. And Carol Hutchins, of course, national title, Bev Plocky. And forget the coaching. They're phenomenal teachers. And if you're not a phenomenal teacher, you're not going to be a phenomenal coach. It, it does not work that way. So I'm willing to bet that Mrs. Hill in third grade, and I've just like that, Brad, you pull these names up. I'm going to bet you were not in third grade last year, I don't think. So that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and of course, Mr. Smith and business law, I'm going to bet they were not easy. Is that correct? No, they had high expectations. You know, again, when we're equipping from Calgary, Canada, Hawaii, to Orlando, to Novi, to Minnetonka, to Dublin, Ohio, when we're equipping our, our education client partners with the tools to go select one more like the best, we know whether it's the coach or whether it's the teacher, whether it's a sped ed teacher or the education specialist, the core uh, of those people are obviously they're focused on others. They're focused on the student. They're focused on the student athlete. Uh, they have immense expectations for themselves and others. They don't believe in the low bar. They believe in the high bar. And you may swear at them and you may not like what they did, but realize later that discipline was a form of love, that high expectations was the greatest gift you could give somebody. Um, but you know, and I go on and on, but we measure 22 layers of DNA in great teachers. And we just talked about a few, but the world thinks if you go get the degree and you want a nine month job, you'd be successful. Well, we know as we went to school, why couldn't I give you my hands, all my fingers and all my toes to talk about Mrs. Hill and Mr. Smith? Why could I only pick two? Because education is a profession who's not learned. There are gifted people for that profession and other people who want a job in that profession who shouldn't be in that profession. I agree with that entirely, of course. As I said in my book, of course, you will not get them all this way, but you don't want them all. That's the other thing. Don't worry about getting them all. You don't want, worry if you do get them all because now you got a problem. That's right. So that means you, you don't you have, the, you're not clear about the standard. 
Ernest Hemingway gave me, gave me, gave all writers a great line that I've used many times since. If all you're cutting from your manuscript are bad pages, you have bad pages left in your manuscript. All right. You have to make some tough choices there. Then if, if at tryouts, uh, at your interview process, if all you're cutting are bad candidates, you got bad candidates in your, in your pool. It's got to be painful to make that last cut. It's got to be tough because the ones you want have got to be the Navy SEALs, the Peace Corps folks, the A-listers. And, uh, and you got them, man. This has been a clinic, a clinic, Brad, on how to do this. And what I love about this, and you know this better than I do, you can give everybody out there, this is the playbook. And three people out of 100 go, man, this is the playbook. This is great. Thank you. And other folks are checking their watch and go right ahead. Yeah. Because those three just ate your lunch. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's right. They You'll get beat by somebody who's learning what you're too busy or your mindset says is too hard. You know, I was yesterday I was with uh, in D.C. with a whole bunch of two and three star generals over the past, you know, probably th- 30 years. I'm um, just amazing, amazing leaders, the Marines, all, all of them are Marine generals. And just, you know, being able to interview them on the golf course as we're, you know, on this this uh, outing and just the w- words of wisdom. But it all applied to my UPS days. It all applied to my Pitney Bowes days. It all applied to Stryker. But they were just doing it. 485,000 people that is the best fighting force in the history of the world. I love it, Brad. You've been fantastic. I've gone over a little bit and I'm willing to bet none of our listeners will complain because this has been phenomenal, truly phenomenal, a great session. So you've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you know, I'm not making that up. Please subscribe to our podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow Brad Black. By the way, you will not regret it. And I've got a hunch that Brad Black's got a book coming up, so keep your eyes peeled, folks. That's probably going to have John John Bacon's name on it, too. There you go. You, you never know, Brad. You never know. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon, folks. See you next time. Thank you, Brad. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. Please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead.